Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. It is 4.20. Uh, well, not the good 4.20, it's 4.20 in the morning and uh, I am off to my day job and then flying up to Sydney for the workshops we do every year for Gruen to find new guests uh, for the show. Uh, got um, seven brilliant women from the advertising industry coming in to uh, do some workshops today uh, up in Sydney, so... Um, into my day job in Melbourne and then onto a plane up to Sydney uh, uh, to find some new guests for the show, hopefully. And speaking of Gruen, uh, today's guest has been alongside me on that show for the last 11 years. There is no one who um, I often disagree with who I like talking to more. I guess that's the best way to describe Russell. We have a lot of different opinions on the world, but I love hearing uh, his opinions. I love his infectious way of looking at life. Uh, he's an incredibly generous person to work with and a, a great friend of mine. And I enjoyed having this conversation with Russell. I hope that you will enjoy it too. He's got a brilliant documentary about Mojo, the advertising agency Mojo, who are behind some of Australia's most iconic ads and jingles that is going to be playing on the ABC. I just watched it last night. It's brilliant. Um, it's infectious, uh, Russell's love of advertising. And uh, I know not everybody loves advertising. I'm probably one of those people myself, but... I love talking to Russell about advertising. I like talking to Russell about the world and his perspective on the world, even though that often it's not necessarily a perspective that I share. And so I hope that you're going to enjoy this episode with Russell. You're going to get to know him a little bit better if you don't know him well. And uh, anyway, I've got a Patreon, patreon.com slash philosophy. That helps me pay Podcast Mike and Mike Hal and James Fosdyke, who does all the original art. And uh, so if you can contribute to the Patreon, it helps it. Uh, the episodes come out weekly. And uh, yeah, Gruen, Gruen, back on the ABC. So if you can watch that, uh, that would be great. All right, enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. This is how the podcast starts because, yeah, I'm just going to get into it today. Uh, the podcast starts by me asking uh, my guests who they are. So, who are you? Russell Howcroft here, Will. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I was at school or something. Nice to, nice to see you. Nice to see you too, sir. Um, one of the observations that somebody made of you the other day when we were shooting some promos for Gruen is that uh, in the script... It didn't have you using my name, and you are a person who I have noticed now since somebody's pointed it out. You will often, you know, use my name. So yeah, with, you did yeah, it then. Well, will you know? Well, will yeah, whatever. Yeah, well, that's what it is. Will yeah, yeah. often you use my name as like an exclamation point or a question mark or a, a full stop? Well, it's just polite, isn't it, to say the person's name that you're talking to? Maybe I don't know. Is it Russell? <laughs> I think when I, I can, say someone's name, it sounds accusatory. Yeah. I can sort of imagine my mum as I'm growing up saying, you know, well, make sure you look people in the eye and say their name and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Were you raised in that sort of manner? Like, I remember certainly my grandfather, William, Bill, as he is, yeah. uh, was, uh, rest in peace. And uh, he was very big on the, this is how you shake someone's hand. Yep. This is how you look someone in the eye. This is how you behave appropriately in all these yes. situations in which, you know, someone will judge you by the way that you're behaving. Most definitely. I was very, it was drilled into me from a very young age around 
I mean, stuff like always walk on the curbside when walking down the street with a lady. And, uh, and is the theory behind that if, if something splashes up, then yeah. you it yeah. hits you and not the Absolutely. lady? Absolutely. And, and you know what? It's true. To this day, I do it. And if I'm not doing it, I feel uncomfortable. And it's just because I was taught to do that. Um, and my mum would put me on the curbside when she's walking, when we're walking down the street together. And I had a great, so my mother's parents, they, they, they liked things to be done proper, you know, they, and they liked their grandchildren um, to speak as, as well as they possibly could and to articulate themselves clearly. They were onto all that sort of stuff. Most definitely. It's funny, you know, I often think about um, where I went to school in, in grade four, we would have speech classes, if you can believe that, that were then followed by boxing classes. So, and I just think, well, that's actually not a bad thing. Right? It's a good thing to learn how to actually articulate yourself as best as you possibly can. And it's not a bad thing to learn how to fight. Is it um, in the wrong order? Because I would suggest, having heard a few boxers be interviewed... <laughs> That getting punched in the head uh, severely diminishes your capacity for communication. I know, right? So, you know, this is nine-year-old boys with, you know, gloves that are as big as pillows. And you just, you know, go for it. Because I think back in those days, I mean, it's not, it is a long time ago. Part of um, educating, educating boys was to make them tired, you know? Mm. Like, just get them swimming, get them boxing, get them running. You know, that was a big part of our education as we were growing up, like non-stop activity. There is an element of that, which is purely just based on that idea of they, they, they have all this energy that they need to expend regardless, yeah. and you just need to tire them out. That's right. Oh, no, we don't actually even really care if they learn anything today. <laughs> just please, when you re-deliver them to us, yeah. have them be exhausted. Exhausted, right? And so they go to bed at 7 o'clock and leave us alone. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I do remember all that very fondly, though. And, yeah, my my mum and my dad, you know, it was about being polite and, you know... Uh, you know, I didn't. T- I didn't call a parent anything other than Mister or Mrs. until, I mean, literally maybe leaving school. You know, I, I, there was very few older people in my life that were anything other than Mister and Mrs. Although friends might be called Uncle. You know, you might have Uncle Ron and Auntie Peg, as I did. Uncle Ron and Auntie Peg Forge, Forges of Footscray. Um, so they were called auntie, but you sort of didn't know that they weren't your auntie and uncle, but that's what you called them in order to, I suppose, um, indicate friendship, you know, closer than others. Yeah, I've I've noticed that one still exists a bit. I, I've certainly become Uncle Will to, yeah. you know, my friends who have kids. You know, I've noticed as their kids get a little older, the way that they refer to you is... Yeah, I'm certainly not getting any Mr. Andersons, no. and I'm very, I'm very glad about that. Totally. I don't, don't want to feel like I'm in the Matrix, but I... Um, <laughs> and Will does seem, it seems a bit weird for a two-year-old girl to call you Will. Will. So. Yeah. But it is, I, when I think that through, like the fact that my mates called my dad Mr. Howcroft mm. as they were teenagers, it just, it doesn't suit him. And, you know, it, it doesn't suit my dad being called that. And my dad's no longer with us. But, and it's sort of so weird that we did that. I'm so pleased that that, um, as a convention, is no longer with us. Yeah, it's a, that's a very good thing. Well, because I was going to ask that, because with children of your own, what's what, what you know? What what do they call you? <laughs> do you know what I mean like what do their friends call you? I mean, like you know, if yeah, Russ, Rusty, yeah, yeah. 
the, the, the really, you know, the closer ones. It's very interesting because people get closer. It's like, it's rusty, yeah. which I like, you know. Yeah, Russ. Yeah, and, and you know, I hope I hope all of my, my children's friends think our house is friendly and open and available. We, li- we live on a main road, um, which does mean that it's it's going to be used a lot. And, you know, there is a nice pool out the back and the band room is out the back. And um, um, as you know, Will, we've got a pie factory, so we can fill fill people up pretty easily um, with plenty of pies. <laughs> <laughs> So I do hope that they've all, all of our children's friends have seen our house as a friendly place. Uh, tell me, okay, t- let's go back to where you grew up, because yeah. this isn't something that we end up talking about a lot in the conversations that we have. We mm. talk a lot about advertising and marketing and the television show that we make together. And we yeah. talk a lot about football and cricket. Yep. And then that's and love pretty, it. Yeah. And that's, and look, to be honest, we have so many things to say about those things that <laughs> yes. we don't get to a lot of other issues. That's true. So I, I don't, I don't think I've really ever had the opportunity to sit down and speak to you about, you know, what your life was like growing up. So tell me a little bit about, you know, how you grew up, where you grew up, what, yeah. what that life looked like. Right. Okay. I was, well, I was born in Mortlake, which is, um, Western district, Victoria. Um, but I don't remember that, um, you know, all I remember is dad telling me about the square pies that are in Mortlake, which are still famous to this day. You know, people drive through and get themselves a square pie. Um, and then we moved to Melbourne. So my dad was a country guy. Uh, my mother was city and uh, presumably mum won the argument. I don't know. So they finish up in Melbourne and uh, Glen Iris. I don't really remember living in Glen Iris, but I remember very, very well living in Finch Street, East Malvern. Um, now, Finch Street is near Central Park, and Central Park was the centre of everything. Um, I went to the local state school there, Gardner Central State School, um, and that's where my, uh, all my mates were, of course, the Harold Holt swimming pool, um, getting up, um, being brave enough to go to the top tower at Harold Holt and jump off. That was a big part of you know growing up in, in that area. Playing for the. Were you as a child aware of the fact that. Uh, because when you're in the comedy world, <laughs> one of the great things is that um, you get to see what it is that uh, foreigners observe about our city. And Melbourne has you know, the greatest comedy festival in the world, in my opinion. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so it's fair to say that I've been endlessly amused over the last 25 years of people coming to Australia and discovering that we have a, a memorial swimming pool for a Prime Minister <laughs> who drowned at sea. <laughs> I know, right. And, <laughs> It's a, cl- it's a classic building too. It's actually quite a beautiful building. I was there most mornings. Um, my mum would take me to, I was in the swimming squad, loved, loved swimming and then played footy, local footy team, East Malvern Blues. We are the Royal Blues was the song we'd sing. Gardner Ewing, in fact, it was Gardner Methodist was the cricket team until about maybe I was 12 and then it became the Gardner Ewing. There was a merge uh, and I would play cricket. I'd, I'd try hard to play twice twice a weekend actually I play for you know my age group and then if I could play in, a, in an older age group or even with the, with the blokes uh, when I was in grade five my um, my teacher was a man called Mr Haslam and I think he was in the fifths the local fifths and I'd play with the fifths you know as well couldn't get enough of cricket couldn't get enough of footy what was your uh, what was your kind of skill set as a cricketer were you a batsman a bowler or... well I I was I was a pretty good Wicket keeper. I was the, you know, and as time went on, I was sort of like the wicket, that wicket keeper. I was going to say, you strike me as a wicket keeper. Yeah, yeah. If I had, Short if legs, I'd, right? If I'd had to guess for like a thousand dollars, I reckon I would have locked in wicket keeper. Yeah, and it's a, it's a good place because, of course, you can hang, hang it social. on. Social. It's social. It's social. You can You're, talk a lot. You can, yeah. you know, every. It services your wit. 
every ball that's bowled mm. uh, allows in, you to say something. You're involved in the game constantly. Constantly involved yeah. in the game. You're in the middle of it. Yeah. You're in the heart of it. Yeah. And then batting, I was all right at batting. And I, 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 I sort of got to the point in cricket as time went on that I didn't want to wicket keep anymore because I just wanted to pro- I just wanted to say to you know those around me oh you know I can actually bat all right you know so I loved cricket um when school finished I I I sort of continued with it um but I did have a chance to continue with it in a little more seriously than I did you know I could have gone down to Melbourne and maybe gotten the thirds or something you know I got a letter which I don't know whether that where that is now but it's like come down and have a go I wouldn't. I don't. I would never have got to district first. I don't think. I reckon I would have got to thirds, maybe seconds. But yeah, I think I would have got to the thirds. And do uh, you have regret that you didn't, uh, you know, yeah. pursue it a little bit further? I, I do. Except um, I went overseas um, in my early twenties and got a job at an advertising agency over there. Um, and you know, you just wouldn't. I wouldn't change that for anything. And I would play, I played um, in what's called a travelling team over there. So a travelling team being a side that doesn't have a home base. So there'll be a bunch of Londoners that get together and then you would go and play sort of, you know, in sort of the home counties, counties around London, sort of hour and hour and a half out of town. So we did that on the weekends. And you know what, playing cricket over there is, uh, it's just, it is a joyful experience, even if you're playing sort of dodgy cricket like I was or the stuff that's on, you know, at the moment. It's... um. Because the green is a different green and the sun is a different sun. Um, and they they play cricket differently than we play cricket. We do play cricket hard. Even, you know, even first schoolboy cricket is played pretty hard. And then as you're a 21, 22-year-old, it's played hard. There they don't really play it that hard. They they just love it, you know. And I'd, I'd bring up Dad and say, oh, shit, I did okay today, Dan. I made, made a few runs. So it's awesome over here. You know, if they bowl a ball and you hit it, you know, hit a cover drive for four, they sort of put it there again to see if you can do it again. You know, <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah. So I loved, loved that. And it was always where you played cricket was always near a great pub because that was part of choosing where you'd travel to. And of course, the sun doesn't go down till very late, you know. So on a Sunday, you'd be playing cricket probably up until maybe even 8.30. Just... You know, a a really joyful experience. It was it was called the Box Busters was the side, and the uh, the jumper was red and blue for blood and bruises, and the logo was just a, a box like a protector that was split in two, and it was pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> do you sometimes uh, think that we miss the joy of life because we? I mean, this just seems like a small window into something that I suspect is a, a broader part of your personality, which is that um, you admire both playing it hard, but also you think that sometimes in 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 the pursuit of playing it hard across all aspects of life, we s- stop remembering that it's a game and we should be having fun and we should be picking a place to play it that's next to a pub. Yeah, I, yes, Will, very, very much so. I had lots of conversations with... Um, the big bash people, you know, when I was um, doing some work with those guys when I was at 10 and I, I saw big bash and in, to a point they're getting there, actually big bash was an opportunity. It's an opportunity to teach young kids the way cricket should be played. And the way, the way cricket should be played is that the umpire is the umpire, not the technology. There should be no technology in, I, I don't think it should be technology in any cricket actually, but 
Big Bash was the opportunity to to do that. You don't even need technology. You don't even need the technology for runouts. Forget it. If the umpire says you're out, you're out because that's the important part of just life, you know. And also, yeah, I I mean, I I couldn't agree with you more when it comes to cricket because it's such a the beauty of the game is its imperfections. Exactly. Like, you know, it's an amazing game in that, like, if you bat before lunch, you know, some places it's going to be almost impossible to play. Yes. But if you go in after lunch, it'll be the easiest thing that you've ever done in your life. Exactly. Like, there are so many conditions and factors and changeable things that the idea that we somehow think we can get 100% certainty, you know, for it, a decision or a moment or whatever, or right. that we even desire that or need that is... exactly. Yes, I could not agree with you. And the very idea that the umpire now has an action, you know, they'll draw a rectangle in the sky. So what happens, you know, when you're... I, I used to coach a junior side... And all of a sudden, you've got some, you know, a, a young kid wanting to call to the video, you know, the video umpire. So I don't like what that, I, I, I'm not into that. I, I'm into, yeah, the umpire's calls, the umpire's call. Back when I played, the captain was in a position to say, actually, you know what, you weren't out. And they would, they would call the batsman back. And that would happen. That was, it didn't happen all the time, but that was seen as part of the culture of cricket. And, um, yeah, to me, cricket is much bigger than, you know, the storyline of it, um, I think it's a huge part of um, uh, just how I think, I'm going to say how men behave as well. Um, obviously, I played cricket, right? So there's something about it that it gives you something to talk about. I think that's a big part of men socialising. Um, I think we do need something to look at whilst we're also having a conversation. It's just a very, it's a very important part of how we get to know each other. Yeah. Yes. It, it, the The idea that men don't talk to each other is a theme that, you know, has been explored in a bunch of different ways on this podcast. Right. And one of the things that it constantly comes back to is the, the huge role that having something to do yeah. uh, plays in men talking to each other. Yeah. Pool table at a pub mm. is really important. Uh, a friend of mine plays poker with a bunch of blokes and he yeah. says, it's about the poker, but it's also about the fact that you know, a few hands in, so-and-so starts to open up about the fact that things aren't That's as good right. at home or I'm having this issue with my kids and blah, blah, blah. And it becomes that conversation where they get to talk about those things and share those experiences. But right. it is arranged around an activity. Yep. And if you take the activity away, yep. the conversations will not happen. Exactly. You know, and there is a thing, you know, they talk about that men are good at talking when they're side by side, mm. not looking at each other. Yes. You know, so when you're walking down the fairway in a golf, in a golf situation. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So golf is, I mean, I stopped playing golf when my, um, when I, we started, when we had children, cause it just seems like it's just not the right thing to do. You can't take four, five, six hours out of your day on a weekend. I get it. I get it. But then now I've got children that are older. It's lovely just walking down the fairway and with a mate or with family members, males and females, right? When just walking down, just having that conversation, I do, I do thoroughly enjoy that. I'm much, I am much more interested in the game um, than the winning bit. The winning bit is, I, I like it, but it's actually not really the thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's no, no, no. So uh, one of the things that uh, I have a football podcast and it's nonsense. We we talk about nonsense around the game of football, but one of the themes we explore constantly on that is that I am not results driven in my love of football. Now that may come as a result of the fact that I, for the majority of my life, have supported a team that 
had not been that successful. So yep. you have to find other ways to enjoy the game. But uh, what I say to the, I, I rarely watch a Bulldogs game, the team that I support live. Yeah. Rarely watch it live because yep. I don't enjoy it. <laughs> because when I'm watching them, I'm caring about the result. Yep. Whereas I watch any other game of football, I can just enjoy the game because yes. it's not result driven. So what I tend to do with the Bulldogs games is I record them or, you know, these days you can just play them on catch up TV and, um, I'll, I'll know the result. And people are like, does that not take the joy away? And I was like, no, no. that means I can then enjoy the game That's itself. Right. Yeah. And, and watch, and watch the players with a different yeah. attitude as well. I mean, I, you know, one of the, one of the great things about being, you know, we're very lucky us Melbournians, us AFL followers, because we can get really connected to a club. Um, and you know, Will, as you know, I'm, I'm a Melbourne person and I just just enjoy watching the players. You know, that that to me is what it's about. And that's part of the AFL culture, I think, is, you know, we grow up watching players and we enjoy watching them, their skill. We enjoy watching them develop. Um, we don't like it when they get hurt. You know, that that's sort of, um, that's a big part of it for me. I obviously like it more when Melbourne wins. You know, that that's is that is when it gets really exciting. But, you know, it's it's a very deep, it's a deep-seated thing. I always think that, if you're a Melbourne supporter, you know, and you and you did biology, they, oh, we did biology when I don't know, 13, 14, and you open up the biology book and there's a cross-section of the human body. And of course, blood as it leaves the heart is red. And then as it comes back to the heart, it's blue. So when I saw that in the biology book, I thought, well, see, there you go, right? It's just like, it's that deep. The heart really does beat true for the red and the blue. Right? So if you're a Melbourne supporter... And I'll say that to Melbourne supporters and go, oh, absolutely, right? So I know that how I feel about Melbourne is no deeper than how you feel about the Bulldogs. Like, it's equally passionate, but I don't know, right? It's sort of, it's a very, very, very deep thing. Part of it being so deep, of course, is that we just have had no success. And, you know, if you've hung in there, so I was born in 1965, right? And we last won in 1964, when I was on the board of Melbourne, and I do your speeches as you would expect, but the, my opening sentence was always, I was born in 1965, and then the groan from the <laughs> crowd. <laughs> they just go, oh no, you poor. Because of course, most Melbourne supporters are a lot older than me. That's well, the, a, yeah, a big so, issue. Well, the joke uh, I used to, because I was born in 74 and the Bulldogs premiership was uh, 54. Yeah. And uh, as I said to those people, I said, if I'd wanted to watch the replay of that grand final, all I would have had to wait was another two years until television came to Australia. <laughs> exactly. And uh, <laughs> so uh, when, it, when, when they won in 2016, I, um, I actually, for a while, had to struggle with how it was that I, what that meant to me as a person, because I'd always defined myself through the fact that they yes. weren't successful. Yeah, so tell me about that because we th I think about that. So all of a sudden you're a different sort of supporter. Absolutely. Like because I I mean and in some ways I I always think about would I have been a different person because I've been lucky enough that you know my my actual life, you know, my work life and you know my career life and these sort of things have, you know, to a general degree, you know, I like I often make the finals, you know, I'm always <laughs> there point. or thereabouts, you know, yep. not premiers every year, but you know, Up there. one of those teams you expect to be in the mix, you know, yep. come the business end of the season. And, 
that was always juxtaposed by the fact, like I was, I was, you know, kind of glad that I wasn't a Hawthorne supporter or something who were also experiencing that sort of success, you know, yes. with their, you're like, that's sort of too much success ins- for one person insufferable. to take. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'll buy that. I've got this other part of my life that is so completely horrible and dysfunctional yeah. <laughs> that I can still be a balanced person through my, the lessons I'm learning from supporting a, you know, a team yeah. that is not wealthy or successful or, you know, all these sort of Totally things. buy that. So when they won, it, it really did kind of confront me a little bit. And the fact that they then went on to not make the finals for the next two seasons, right. really, I think for a lot of Bulldog supporters. You felt better? Yes. <laughs> I think we all felt like, oh, they actually, you know what? This is actually more comfortable. <laughs> this is. I know. It's funny. It's funny. Because yeah. as you know, us Melbourne supporters got totally carried away thinking that this is going to be the year, right? Mm. Um, and we literally, in March, <laughs> we were planning what we were going to do. Um, and we'd, we'd actually organised, you know, loosely organised the week afterwards. But then that, of course, led to the conversations around, geez, actually, you know, we've been so wanting this and looking forward to it and just to a point of, like, despair and desperation over such a long period of time, when it actually happens, like, what? how are we going to feel about it? And... I can imagine actually just going, I'll go crazy, but there'll be this sort of dark side to it as well. Weird, right? Well, it's it's also like, you know, one of those television shows where there's like a charismatic sort of will they, won't they couple. Yeah. And yeah, the idea of the show is that like, everyone's like, oh, I hope one day they're going to get together. Yeah. But of course, when they do get together, the show inevitably is fucked from then on, right? <laughs> exactly. And it's a bit, there is an element of that that yeah. is, is a bit the same. Having said all that, I wish they'd hurry up and do it. Yeah. Yeah. It would be nice if we could get ourselves. Um, anyway, we'll see. Uh, so uh, t- take us back to, you know, growing up. So yep. primary school, high school, yep. what sort of student are you? Like, are you interested in, in school and academia? What, what sort of subjects are you pursuing? I wasn't particularly clever at school. I think my academic record and my football sort of had a similar trajectory. I was much better at 10 than I was at 18, you know? So I was a, you know, I was a pretty good footballer at 10 and, you know, yeah, did okay. And yeah, school marks was were good for sure. Um, but then by the time I got to 18, you know, I'm a seconds footballer and, you know, seconds, maybe even thirds academically. I didn't really know how to study. Um, but what I, I, I definitely knew how to talk. Yeah. So I, I think that if I was in a position whereby I just had to maybe tell a teacher about what I'd learned and, you know, and, and what that had done to me, I might've been in a better position. I just, I don't know that I was ever very good at actually just getting it from head to hand. Um, you know, I, I remember a teacher in form four, saying, oh, Russell, I marked your paper first because I thought it was going to be, the, you know, the benchmark. And then everyone would rotate around that. Turns out I was wrong. So it, because, and I reflect on that, I think I was, I was probably good in class, but just not good when it came to the end. And I had other things on my mind as well, you know. <laughs> was it, were you at a boy, a boy, all boys school? All boys school, which I, I loved. I, yeah, you did love that? I, I absolutely loved it and was into everything. Um, you know, I... I was very, very busy at school and, you know, um, had a, had, had an amazing time. Music, theater, cricket, footy, camps, cadets, um, everything, everything, everything that was available, 
not everything, but a lot of what was available, I got stuck into. It's fantastic. What, what was the one that was the highlight? What was the one that a young Russell looked forward to the most out of all those things? Well, we had a camp um, down at Cowles. And um, as, you, as you got older, you got on the committee of the camp. And it was a camp that was run by the kids for the kids. And, you know, and I finished up being what's called the chief, you know, yeah. the, and I just... First know, board position. Yeah, yeah. I just absolutely <laughs> could not get enough of it. Yeah. yeah. And it was, um, as much as anything, you know, I was away from home and I, you know, like three weeks away from home during those summer holidays, that was, I could hardly wait. Um, and every day would be sailing or, you know, surfing or playing cricket on the beach or whatever. So... You know, like just having fun with your friends on a 24-7 for three weeks. And still to this day, a lot of my friends are the fellas that were on those camps. It's interesting, right? We, in fact, you know, just last weekend, a few of us went away and quite a number of them are ex, you know, Cow's Camp kids. So funny. How how is it that you maintain those friendships? Because we have those. Like, I mean, we we all have have those, right? Like, I mean... I was lucky enough the other day, uh, one of the guests on this podcast was, and chronologically, who knows whether it's happening before this or after this or when somebody's listening to this podcast, but my friend, friend Mark Howard, Howie, who's a yep. cricket and football commentator and these days. comes but from your area too, right? We went to high school together. Yeah. We sat, sat next to each other in class for, yes. you know, six years of high school. Fantastic. But, you know, and we've stayed friends, like, because our worlds have, you know, intersected every now and again, but... There's him and another guy, and they're not not too much change from that, to be honest. Yeah. Like in regard to friendships that have stayed that long. So, how is it that your friendships have endured from that time? Yeah, I, and and I would not claim to be great at it. There are certainly other friends of mine that are much better at staying closer to to their you know our mates. Although the good news is that we, you know we left in '83, um, and there now is a quarterly you know a quarterly 1983 drink and. I've been at that with four people, but I've been at that with 40 people. So, and that's, I think that's a really, I do think that's a good thing. And I think when you get to, you know, in your fifties, as I now am, um, you really actually value that because of course you spent the previous 20 years with family and kids and, you know, just, just dealing with all that stuff. So now we've got a bit more time. Um, I suppose that's one of the reasons why that's starting to come back as, as something that we all really, really do enjoy. Um, and then of course, um, our partners, my, my wife, Kate, she's a fabulous connector amongst, you know, friends. Um, and you know, when I look back on that, it's like, my God, we've known each other a very long time <laughs> and there's lots of friendships, which are 30, 40 years old now. It's, it's incredible, isn't it? And yet we still support each other. Um, and I think another thing that's occurred maybe, with men, I think us blokes are getting much better at being nice to each other. Um, and I don't think that's just age. I think that's an era that we're now in. Um, we're able to have conversations around, you know, mental health and how's home and is everything okay with work? Um, and I don't know, would 50 year old men have done that 20, 30 years ago? I'm not sure they might've, they might've. So it might be a combination of our age and stage and a different sort of social, what's socially normal in inverted commas, a good thing. Uh, so when you look at your life now, how old are you? Uh, 54. Four. Okay. So, uh, you look Can at you your, you believe that will, I can't, I mean, we, <laughs> it's like... but it, also, also I'm 45 and I can't believe that. No, either, I can't so, believe that. Right. You know, 
I did go to your 40th. I was thanking you for the invitation. It was well, lovely. see, but that seems like such a long time it ago. It does seem now. like a long time ago. I know, right? I mean, well, we started making this. Do you remember what year Gruen started? Do you it know would what? be uh, 07? It's 11 or 12 years ago now. 12 years ago. And. Um, Amazing, right? You know, so we've known each other a very long time. But I often think that. You've grown up. I often think one of the things is that um, you you almost always feel like you're the age when you met someone. Yeah. I always think yes. I, there's part of me that still feels like you and I are the same age as when we met, you know, a dozen yeah. years ago. And, and and you get stuck in time almost in that moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a lovely thing, right? <laughs> I don't. I and I I don't feel any older. I mean, my mum's 82, and she says she still feels 16. And you know what? I believe her. Um, and she's still got a wonderful. Um, outlook on life. She still laughs more than most people, you know. So I don't know that, sure, obviously you're, the age you are gets older, but I'm not so sure that your personality and your traits and values, I don't know that they, probably depends a bit on what happens during life, yeah. Um, but I don't feel any different. Um, a- I ask people on this podcast whether they have a philosophy. That's the the loose premise for the conversation that we've already been having, but yep. uh, it's yep. the loose premise. Yep. Um, you're a man who, you know, uh, has lived in a world full of, you know, aphorisms and advice. You've published a book of your own, you know, thoughts around the advertising industry. Like, you know, do you have a, a philosophy by which you live your life or do you have a philosophy in regard to work or to love or to mm-hmm. raising children? Maybe you have a series of them, mm-hmm. but that's the, that's the premise. I ask yeah. you that question now, yeah. answer it as you will. Okay. First thing to say is on the book, the book was created because of you. Because you said, you know, Russell, you should write a book, 99 Reasons Why I Love Advertising. (laughs) And so I went away and I actually wrote down 99 Reasons Why I Loved Advertising and everything from serious to silly, you know, like there's always beer in the fridge. So, you know, it's not that hard to write out 99 reasons. And then I showed that to Penguin um, and they said, well, there's sort of a book in that, but what about if you actually, you know, go a bit deeper? So I have to thank you for for stimulating that as an idea. So um, philosophy. So a thing that had a big impact on me um, in Form Six, Year Twelve. So our teacher asked us to go home. I think it was an English teacher, maybe. Go home and ask our parents. You know what they expected of us or what they wanted us to do. You know. Anyway, so next day. You know, it was very predictable, you know, what the kids said. Um, and my father said, well, if, you know, so the three H's is all that matters, just happy, healthy, and honest. Um, and that did have a big impact on me, as much as anything, because no one else said something like that. Um, and there's no doubt that I do, I am genu- generally happy. Um, and a dishonest situation I find very, very uncomfortable. Um, and thankfully I am healthy. So I, I, I like that just as a general, you know, start point. Um, and I consider myself lucky to be in, you know, all those three things. I think that's sort of part of what I am. So that's pretty nice. Um, uh, you would expect, well, I sort of, I think that everyone is, everyone's got the same balance sheet. I think we're all, basically, I think we're all equal, really. Um, some of us, our assets, liability and proprietorship will be in different shapes, but in the end, our balance sheet is exactly the same. Um, and treating everyone equally is a really important part of, I suppose, how I go about things. I hate bullies so passionately that I just, it makes me, or you know, I can't even talk about it. 
Um, I don't really judge. That gets me in trouble sometimes. I trust too much too quickly, I think. I am trust first and then, you know. Be proven wrong. Yeah, I am definitely that. And that can be, that I think can be. Sometimes you're proven wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's very, very true. Um, and then um, if we sort of get political, I, I am liberal, but I, but I mean that in a philosophical sense. I am most definitely a liberal person, a small L liberal person. You know, I, I um, think that people should do what they wish um, as long as, you know, there are laws in place. And if you do things that are against the law, well, then that, you know, gets dealt with. But I don't like to judge. I do think that I do trust people. I think that people can get on with their own lives. Um, people should have the opportunity to have fulfilling life, a happy life. And yeah, I call it a, let's call it a liberal life, but I'm not saying that in a political context, you get what I mean by that, right? In a social context. Where did that come from? Because it's funny, like, because, uh, one of the criticisms that I I get around this podcast is that, uh, I fill it with like-minded people, Russell, (laughs) you know, because most of the people who come on this podcast are people that I... I like, you yeah. know, they're, yeah. they're on the podcast. It's your because, podcast. Yeah, it's my podcast. It's my house, you <laughs> yeah. know, and I'm inviting people into my house. Yeah. But in the same way as I would invite people in my house, I, I can often like someone and, you know, disagree with their politics or have a different perspective on life than yeah. they do. And funnily enough, often, you know, the conversations we have, I think, you know, for two people who would, when we put on our team colors, yeah. you know, we're very, yeah, we're in different changing rooms. Yep. You know, we, we have a, a, a lot of you know, shared, you know, kind of uh, general philosophies around life. Mm. So it it always, always amazes, not amazes me, it always uh, interests me how it is that, you know, with your perspective on the way that you look at the world yeah. and the, the way you treat other people, yeah. how that found itself to be someone who, you know, identifies as being a liberal person. Yeah. Where did that, where did that, how did that happen? It's a really good question. Um Gosh, and it's not good enough to say I don't know. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know is always a valid answer, yeah. but I'd like to explore it more yeah. if I can. I don't like, I'm just sort of thinking about stuff I don't like. I Like, as we've discussed actually once on the show, like the, the high-vis vest is something that I see as a symbol of, you know, I, I call it Australia's national dress, you know, and that to me is anti-liberal, you know. I, it, it, I get why there is these, you know, high-vis vests, but to me it's too much constraint, um, and it, and it's too much get, of getting into people's faces, and and as a result of that, you're not you're going to curtail people, um, and you're going to curtail their success, or you're going to curtail their creativity, or you're just going to curtail them because you find them for um, you know not doing the right thing just because there's a law there or there's a rule there, rather than actually saying you know what mate just you know. I'm not going to take 75 bucks off you because I know that you need that to feed your children. You know, we just need to loosen up a bit. I get very, very anxious around Australia now. I feel like we're terribly constipated and we're we're not loose enough. You know, we're not free enough. So tell us what you mean by that. Because I I, I love to explore that more. Because Mm. to be honest, I'm very fascinated by the point in our history and evolution as a nation that we're at. Yeah. In fact, we could probably start this by taking one of the off-air conversations that we had on to air, which is just around we we before we came in, we went and had lunch. Yeah. And uh, we talked about a whole bunch of things, some of which are not for broadcast on this podcast, but I think that one that probably 
uh, is a good starting point is that we were having quite an in-depth conversation around the idea that um, about how we recognize and appreciate and make recompense with and reconcile with, you know, our indigenous population. Yes. And, you know, the fact that, you know, we as a country, Australia, you know, this part of Australia is new and there has been a, you know, existing population here for, you know, let's say 60 you know, 60 plus, yep. you know, a long time, but yep. the world's oldest living civilization. And the idea that if we could embrace that, that it is only a positive for our country. Yeah. So talk me through, you know, as much of that as you yeah. Yeah, are happy to talk about. Yeah. Well, uh, there is, I, I, I wouldn't be alone. Well, I know I'm not alone, Will, because I, you, I know you're with me on this, but I, I think that the vast majority of us um, Australians are desperate there for there to be reconciliation, for there to be a, a movement, for this thing to be repaired. But for that to happen in a really positive way, right? Because we should be saying this part of who and what we are is so important in that it will give us, I think it will, I think it will settle us. And I think it will give us greater depth I've always felt this sort of weird thing in my in my head in that I think that most of us just walk on top of the surface. I don't feel like any of us feel deep in the surf in the in the soil. And I think that that will help us. Um and and we need to find a way to do this really positively. You know, I went to um just as you were talking then, well I reminded myself of um the Australian newspapers 50th or 60th birthday, I can't recall, think maybe 50th birthday, and they had a dinner, and Noel Pearson was the guest speaker. He, he, Google it, he gave the most amazing speech. And the way he frames it is that what we need to do is accept or, or, or promote the idea that um, Indigenous Australia and its 60,000 years of history and all that that brings to us is important to who and what we are. Britain and its institutions are important to who and what we are. And the insanely brilliant miracle of our multinational, multicultural society is also part of who we are, who and what we are. So this isn't about a winning and losing. It's about actually getting the language right around what we are. So Noel Pearson, for me, is just nails it when you read how he articulates that much better than I did just then. But it's it's beautiful because it's not as I say, it's it's an apolitical perspective. Indigenous equal to Britain and its institutions equal to the miracle of our multicultural society. And if we can get a sense that all those things are equally important about who and what we are, then that's awesome. What has to happen though for Pillar One, Indigenous, is far greater than what's happening right now. I do feel like there's a really positive movement though I, I genuinely do i think for someone who you know for let's just say you know middle class white guys i think most of them would think that that's the case and that would be maybe maybe i'm the first generation that believes that that is absolutely vital i don't want to do a disservice to previous white middle class guys but i suspect that i'm right it's it seems to me that we can never fully accept who we are as a country without dealing what has happened before. Yeah. And that doesn't have to be a, that can be a, like a net gain benefit to our country. Yes. Because if we reconcile it properly, 
we can also embrace it properly. That's right. We can celebrate it. We can celebrate the fact that this country, instead of a country that has no history, you know, where like a building's been up for 35 years and we put it on a heritage list, you know, because we have no actual history. Well, suddenly we have, guess what? We have the world's oldest living you know, people, but not just that. We get to embrace their stories and their way of looking at the world and the way that they survived and the various, you know, ways of living life that there were. And, you know, it, we'll get a greater connection to the unique animals and flora and fauna and things that are in this country that, again, I think we don't ever fully embrace because we know if we open up that door, there's a lot of uncomfortable conversations that have to happen as well. And look, I I, I don't know the school curriculum inside out, but I suspect I'm right when I say, well, there actually isn't even Indigenous studies. You know, like surely part of your curriculum needs to be Indigenous studies and understanding the land upon which we, you know, sit and... Even I, I was at the Qantas Lounge recently, and they had the the map, um, you know, the Indigenous map of Australia. It's unbelievable. I've got a, you know, on my phone, took a photograph of it. It's it's just just that in itself is a, is important to see. Um, the other one which I um, love googling is, of course, the seasons of Melbourne. So if you actually get the Indigenous seasons of Melbourne, there's seven, right? And then if you look at the seven seasons and read about what they say, well, during this period, this is what happens. You go, well, that makes a lot of sense. So (laughs) the notion that we use European seasons and throw them into Melbourne and then complain, well, our spring isn't like a European spring. Well, of course not, Fred. They're actually, there's actually (laughs) seven seasons in Melbourne. That's why four that are European make no sense. There's seven. So we all need to learn those. I wish I could just recite those seven seasons now. I can't. I wish I could. Um, but we should all know that the Indigenous world tells us that Melbourne has seven seasons, right? So that in itself, I just think that makes us feel more comfortable about Melbourne's weather, right? Well, it was actually seven seasons, not four. Oh, well, that makes sense. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 Go from, it's when the argument around climate change always raises his ugly head. Um, you know, my parents are farmers. They don't need to hear from some scientists around climate change. They're farmers. Yeah. What they're obsessed with is what it's the climate's weather. doing yes. and what the weather's doing. Yeah. And they know every aspect of what it used to be like and That's what fine. it's like now. That's fine. You know, they don't need to read another report or read another newspaper article. They're living it. That's their real experience. Yeah. And they're actually the people that, you know, in a lot of ways we should be listening to more uh, because of, of course, that. Of course. All right. So we're reconciliation with our Indigenous people. Uh, number one priority as a country uh, yes, and it relates to number two priority as a country, which is what is Brand Australia. Now, I know I would use that language, but again, I think that's a really important um, opportunity for our country. Uh, we need to find a way to unify. So I think we need to find a way, as we've just discussed, Noel Pearson, Indigenous reconciliation. Um, but then if I put my marketing hat on, um, we need to have a, very, a clearer understanding of what we want to project out to the world. You know, we've been doing some work on this and what's really interesting is how the world sees us and how we see ourselves is very, very different. There's lots of evidence to to say that the world actually thinks this, maybe we're the best country in the world. Yeah, They look at us and they go, geez, what's going on there? Unbelievably creative. Cost cost of living, uh, quality of life. Quality of life, um, stable. The the fact that, you know, we have 
almost every uh, aspect of society. Like, I mean, Australians been to space, you know, like it doesn't matter what the job is or the industry is or the opportunity is, eventually you're going to run to in, run into a fucking Aussie doing it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> like, right. Right. Incredible. Yeah. So Australia is an incredible place and we do in many, in many cases, you know, we do in an economic sense, but cultural Etc. We do do incredibly well, and the world does see us as being an amazing place. We don't see ourselves like that, um, and we we need to find a way. I mean, I, I talk about saying that we need to find our inner Baz, you know, the, as in Baz Luhrmann. Like the country needs to project itself out to the world, like he does. Highly entrepreneurial, highly creative, someone who, you know. I, I don't even know whether the government's recognised Baz Luhrmann. Has he gotten? I don't think he's you know like in an AO sense. I think the guy's got four of the top ten films ever made. You know, in Australia, like insane, a, a global impact person. That's that's who we need to you know. If we could bottle that up and turn that into brand Australia, it's quite funny. He's called Baz. Then. I mean, if you know, he's, it, it, it almost, like, as you said, in that sort of poetic way, if you're telling a story, then, you yeah. know, that's what you love, right? Yeah. You know, telling it through a story. Let's talk about this. Let's get rid of all the, you know, figures and, you know, blah, 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 and arguments against and whatever. But let's tell the story of who we are. That's you right. Know? We need to do it. And even that uh, relates to that idea, as you said, about, like, we there's a attitude even that we like to believe about ourselves, I think sometimes, which is that, you know, we can have a crack at anything, right? Yeah. We're the Aussies, but we'll go over there and we'll take on the Poms in the cricket and we'll beat them and we'll go to the Olympics and we'll beat them and we'll, you know, we'll be the best soldiers in the war and we'll do, you know, we'll take on Hollywood and we'll, you know, our singers will, you know, this is the attitude that we have. Yeah. Sometimes when we don't say, you know, look, we have this massive, you know, thing that we need to, you know, overcome and work out a solution to in our country, which is, you know, the relationship between original Australia and, you know, the newer arrivals in Australia, that we don't embrace that challenge in the same way as we kind of embrace the challenge of doing all those other things. That's right. And yeah, we need to find a way. So, you know, New Zealand's got pure and that's worked brilliantly for them. You know, Britain's got great and the US, of course, is you know, let's call it can do. And, you know, brands do, sorry, nations do tend to have a, a thing, a, a, a word or two that they can relate to. So what is our thing now? Because there was a period of time where to the world we were larrikin, I think. Yeah. You know, we were, you know, cheeky upstarts. Yeah. We were fun. You know, the Aussies were the backpackers of the world. Yeah. The, it was always fun if there was an Aussie there. And certainly that Paul Hogan, yeah. you know, era and period defined us on a world stage as, exactly. you know, that, that sort of iconic larrikin. Yes. What are we now? I, I think that it needs to be redefined. Uh, I genuinely do. I mean, the word I like using about Australia is magic, but, you know, there's a there's a magical quality to this place. And um, and you can come here and it can be, you can have a magical experience. The animals themselves are magic. Really. Magical. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but that's true, right? The indigenous stories, uh, magic, you know, and... I don't, it's not about putting a whole country down to one word, but in the world of brands, it's sort of part of getting it right. Um, and if it, if you can find a word that works, then awesome. There'll be other, there's others, I'm sure. Um, I, I, I genuinely believe it's really important because we, we also need to project ourselves out to the world. We need to be pro-growth. That's pretty important. I think that's an interesting political discussion as well. Um, Big Australia to me is absolutely vital. The very idea that we think that we can not let lots let lots of people into this place 
to enjoy the fruits of this magical place. I find bizarre. Right. So how do you uh, counterbalance, you know, growth, yep. that idea with, you know, the, the downside of that that comes with, you know, infrastructure issues or the idea that, um, uh, you know, the, the strain on the environment, these sort of things that, you know, sort of growth and, you know, constant growth and the idea of, you know, growing more and more co- brings with it. Yeah. Um, well, use ingenuity, you know, <laughs> they build it. Build it, yeah. I mean, I that I I am most definitely in that camp. You know, I think we need to, uh, you know, infrastructure is a wonderful investment. Or, you know, and that's that's where money ought to be spent. Our taxes ought to be spent on better infrastructure on a continuous, ongoing basis. There shouldn't be that should never ever stop, right? Oh, we've built it now. You know, well that attitude obviously means that forty, fifty years later, you got to do a whole lot in a in a much bigger way. I mean, you know, us Melburnians. I look at Tullamarine. My God, you know, I was at um the airport waiting to get on a plane and the Sydney arrival. So Sydney, Melbourne arrived 7.40 a.m. So they're getting off the plane at 7.45. Most of the plane, of course, is business people. What are they confronted with at 7.45 in order to get into the city to conduct business? They're, conducted, they're confronted with a cab or a bus on the Tullamarine Freeway at 7.45. They're not going to be at work at their office by nine o'clock, and it's going to be an horrendous experience, as we all know that we've been on that freeway. So then we go, I go, well, okay, surely we want Sydney business people on planes coming to Melbourne, but you, if you're a Sydney sider, you would avoid that at all costs, right? You just, why, why, I'm not going to do that. So we need to grease the wheels of the economy. You have to grease the wheels. Um, Otherwise, you're flat and flat equals backwards. And people don't want to go backwards. In the end, we want, you know, improvements in our life and we want our children to have better lives than we've got. I think that that's fair and reasonable. I think trying to cap growth and, oh, no, we don't want to do that. I I think it's instinctively wrong. And, um, I don't like that as a notion. Do you think that our children will have better futures than we we've got a lot did. to we've got because a lot to get there is right a, well yeah there's an argument that says that you know perhaps that this next generation is going to have a harder time of it for a whole bunch of different reasons than the generations you know the kind of my generation your generation the crossover between those two things that yep. have come before who kind of you know got that little not not too bad a spot in the evolution you know of yep. of humanity and the world and Australia and all those sort of things that it might be a bigger challenge for the next generation what's your optimism around that one no, way I'm very, or the other very 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 optimistic about <laughs> of course of course no because i believe i believe that um we are awesome at fixing stuff you know i think we're awesome at solving problems that's that's what makes what that's what's always made the world go around you know there's a there's an issue we fix it um, there's an economic issue, political issue, whatever it is, because in the end, we in the end we want to have a better life, you know. And the next generation, you know, my children, their children, they'll they will ensure that that is the case. The, you know, the digital world is interesting. There's much more upside than there is downside, and um, the connectedness that they have, um, the ability for them to have a collective voice off the back of their perspective. This is all really, you know, wonderful stuff. Um, they they will change how they live in Australia for sure. Um, you know the idea, um, just in my own home, for example. You know I've got a big big block of land in you know it's on a main road. That's how I could afford it twenty years ago. Um, it's a very big block of land. 
there's only five people living on it, you know, and it's on a tram line. That's just crazy. Um, and yet I'm not allowed to actually develop it because there's a heritage overlay over it, which I just think is completely mental. You know, there should be 30, 40 people living on that significant chunk of land on a tram line. So I think that how we live is going to change significantly. I think we'll enjoy an inner city urban street life much more than you and I have a bit, but certainly our parents didn't. Um, yeah, I think that Australian urban life is going to, it already is changing dramatically. It will change a lot more. What are your fears looking forward? Do you have fears looking forward? Like it's always interesting because you are one of those people who it is hard not to get swept up in your optimism about how things will work out. You know, there's a part of me that, you know, when I'm around you and when I talk to you about these things that I walk away from those conversations, they're like, yes, we are problem solvers. Yes, we can fix things. Yeah. You're right. The world would be better if everyone was a millionaire. Like, yeah. you know, well, like. And it would. Yeah. Right? But, but then there's the other part of me, the more, you know, cynical part of me that mm. then goes, but, but what about this? And, but what about this? And, yeah, but and I, you know, how about this as well? And what about the fact that the world's on fire and the, you know, all these sort of things? Uh, yes, uh, of course. Um, I, profit's really important, Will. Like the, the profit motive plays a big role in how money goes around. Um, and we, we should embrace that. We should embrace private enterprise. We should embrace the power of individuals and businesses to sort stuff out. Um, so for example, I'm at PwC. It's a very significant organization. You know, it's big and it's got a lot of money and it's highly capable. And it, it has set itself the task to solve homelessness in Australia within a generation. Now it's not saying it will, but it is putting a massive effort into the, let's call it the homelessness industry, which is not a great way to, to describe it, but there are lots of very worthy, decent organisations and people that are trying to sort out homelessness. You apply the capability and the power of PwC to that, bring all those people, all those parties into the one space. You apply purpose-driven thinking. We're gonna, we are going to see what we can do to solve this. Now, the effort will be substantial. The investment will be substantial. There will be lots of great ideas. There are individuals out there, wonderful individuals out there that want to solve it. And I, I, I'm not going to say it will be solved because, you know, that's a tough one. But the, the organisation will come up with uh, lots of ideas that will improve the situation. You know, I was with a fellow last night um, who made lots of money uh, and he has created a network of trucks that have got washing machines in them. And his network goes around to the homelessness and washes their clothes. Now, that's a, that is a wonderful thing that that fellow is doing. But of course, what we don't want is we don't want the need for that to be the case. So that's where there's a interesting tensions. So yeah, look, so, I trust so, people. I do so trust people to fix stuff. For the sake of this argument, and because it's an interesting intellectual yeah. experience, and I like having these conversations, um, what about those who would argue that, you know, uh, we, we live in this society now, you see it a lot in America, which is, and look, I will say this, the rich in America 
have got very good at holding each other accountable for using their wealth yep. to, you know, address, you know, more broad general society issues. Yes. But there, there would be another argument made that it's the inequality based in the system that, you know, it, those people wouldn't need as much help if there wasn't so much inequality built yep. into the system in the first place. Yes. So um, how do you balance that idea of going, okay, like, you know, profit, enterprise, these sort of things, uh, are positive because they move things forward. They yep. get people to innovate. They get people to look for solutions. They allow that um, versus the sort of downside to that, which is that idea that, you know, sometimes the people who have this wealth use it to accumulate unnecessary power, yep. to exert influence over things, to create monopolies, to yep. not, not pay taxes, to, you know, do all those things that are counterproductive to a society right. being a good thing. And it doesn't matter how many washing machine vans they have. Yeah. Uh, but you know, like there's a broader implication to the way the system is set up. That, that's right. And, and that's, but, but the system can change and you are able to change the tax system. You know, you can change the, the, the levers are there. Of course you have to have the political will and you have to have the numbers and you have to be persuasive and there's always stuff that gets in the way of change. And I think it's really tough in Australia for any change, but the levers do exist and um, we just need to perhaps get, I think maybe as a culture, we need to get better at wanting ideas and wanting change. I think there's a conservative nature to to us, which does hold us back. And we need to, and I, I, I don't want to say it again, we do need to trust leadership, you know, trust government, trust leadership. Um, they They do put themselves out there. Um, and they put themselves out there because they do want to, you know, um, progress the country. I don't think people are in there because they want to regress the country. Uh, and maybe we all need to just relax a little and let them get on with, you know, get, let them get on with business. <laughs> and if, if they want to, if, if increasing taxes is going to be part of actually having a better system that keeps people in hospitals, or whatever, well, then okay, right? Let's have the argument. Let's, let's get, the, get it out there. I'm a believer in the fact the fact that we have lost the capacity to have decent, respectful conversations with people that we disagree with. It's a tragedy, isn't and it? I think that's to me more than more than any of these positions being right or wrong. Yeah, the idea that we can't sit down at a table with somebody and go, we both agree that uh, we want a healthcare system that you know, at the very least, has a safety net for everybody, yep. where everybody has this, and we agree to this certain set of principles, and yeah. now we can have an argument. About yeah. how we implement this part of it, or how we implement this That's part right. of it, and it, it, it interests me how we're not great at celebrating how awesome it is that we've got a great health system. That, you know, we have a great health system. Yeah, let's celebrate the fact that we are in a country that has got you know healthcare that is pretty much well, it's universal. Really, everyone is able to get their hands on it, um, and all we want to do is make it better. Yeah, yeah so. It's like, you know, you look at the British with their NHS, like they see the NHS as a core component of who and what Britain are. Source of national pride. Source of national pride. Um, we've got one of those. Yeah. Yeah. And and yet I don't know that we celebrate it enough. And But then I, then I think that through and I go, what's the vehicle to celebrate it? How do we, how do you have unifying messages around... Geez, how good's the health system? We're just trying to make it better. How do you how, like? What's the vehicle to make that happen? I think it's really tough. How do you think Australians would uh, respond to a state of the nation, like uh, a, yeah, a yearly yeah. address by the prime minister or the leader of the country yeah. that was not about 
politics was not about here's what we've achieved and he, yeah the opposition wanted to you know do the complete opposite and they're all idiots yeah because we all know that's not true yeah. we all know that most of the time what both sides are trying to do is some version of the same thing they've just got a few different ideas about yep. what it is it's rare that you know and even the language of calling them the opposition I I always like to think the alternative government yeah yeah because but- if you just move the language from them being the opposition because the opposition even that you language says you've got to oppose yeah. Whereas if they're the alternative government, right. what you're saying is there's a set of ideals, mm. you know, much like a football season, right? Everyone's trying to win the premiership, but everybody's got a different game plan to yeah. how they're going to yep. go about winning it. Yep. But you, we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all agreeing on the fact that we want Australia to run well and run better. We agree that the opposition also want that. The alternative government also want that. Yeah. But here's their set of principles of how that will happen. And our set of principles of how that happened are here. Yeah. They're not the opposition. They're not all idiots. They don't want to block everything that we block. They've just got a different way of, mm. you know, we both have a healthcare policy. This is ours. This is theirs. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Alternative government rather yeah. than yeah. opposition. Why not? Yeah. That, that requires a maturity. But, but. And then once a year you do a, like, as I said, a, I state, like of, a state of the why nation. Wouldn't, why an address to the nation That's where you say. Idea. It just yeah, here's here's what's going on in Australia. Here's some good things that we should celebrate. Yeah. Uh, we're doing this well. We're doing this well. We're doing this well, and we want to do this even better. So here's what we're going to do about that. Yeah, I I can't believe that we don't actually have that. It's quite interesting, isn't it? We ought to have that um, because we do need some unifying ideas. I'm very very certain of that. Back to brand Australia. That's got to be. That's a unifying idea. Um, State of the Nation address, that is a unifying idea. I, I think because the media has become so fractured, um, you know, we don't we don't turn on to the ABC at 6pm every Sunday to, to watch Countdown and see what's, you know, number one song in the country anymore. So the sort of the unity that that created in, you know, like we all knew what was number one. Um, we we don't really have those unifying moments. We, we all moments. knew what was number one, but we also all found out what was number one at the same time. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and that's missing. And and it's very it's a tough one this one, isn't it? Because you don't want to sound nostalgic, because um, I'm all for what's next and you know progresses and you know I love all that stuff, but I am also nostalgic for that sense of unity that actually was created by media. Of course it was, because as we gathered around the TV, um, you know, Sunday night movie, uh, you, you you literally had 80% of the country watching a Sunday night movie. Uh, so, you know, you'd run an ad during the Sunday night movie and 80% of the country saw the ad. So we, we don't have those moments. Maybe a grand final, an NRL, AFL grand final, maybe, you know, that probably is a moment. Melbourne Cup. But just day in, day out moments that get us all on the same page, uh, uh, they don't really exist, certainly not like they used to. It, it is something that I feel is missed. And I don't think that you have to, like, you know, go, th- th- those days were better. Mm. Like, I, I am a bit like you, whereas I'm like, well, why can't we just take the things that were good about the old days and incorporate them into yep. where we go next? Better ads. <laughs> um, I'm just going to duck to the bathroom Go and uh, we'll have a little pause. Now, there's so many things I'd love to talk to you about, Russell, and we'll, I think we're going to have to do another one. We're going to have to do another one because we've barely, we've barely scratched the surface at this point, but I want to talk about, right. uh, before we get to I'd the I'd love end, to do another one. We've got another 20 minutes. We, okay. We'll explore 
You know what? Let's do no Gruen. We won't do a Gruen. Like, you know, we don't have time to go into Gruen now. We'll do a separate one. It's pretty successful though, hasn't it? I mean, the fact that we're just rolling into year 12 or whatever it is, is unexpected. I mean, well, okay, let's answer this because it'll take us to what I I was going to segue to anyway, which is your Mojo documentary. Unreal. Um, uh, So we'll we'll do a proper Gruen one at some stage and just sit down and have a a real chat about Gruen. But um, tell me 12 years ago, take me back to 12 years ago (laughs) and and how how that all started and what your recollections of uh, what happened uh, 12 years ago. Well, that it's a, it's a interesting story. I, um, so I, I saw John Casimer a year prior to getting a phone call from Anita, I think Anita Jacoby. Um, look, Russell, you might remember meeting John a year ago. Um, you know, there's, we've got a plane ticket for you. Can you come up to Sydney? Cause we're going to do this um, test, you know, screen test. And so I, I really didn't think anything of it, actually. I just thought, of course I'll do that. But I didn't actually realize that this was the beginning of a TV show. I just thought it was, you know, more research. And so I arrived, you were sitting there um, where you sit today. Um, and I was put in a spot, which turns out was a spot I sit in today. And then we had a conversation about ads. Um, and of course, as you, as you know, Will, I love talking about advertising. And so I just thoroughly enjoyed that experience. Um, I then got, a f- I think I had to do it again, actually. Now, I want to, so uh, while we're talking about how much you love advertising and we're going to go to the yeah. mojo thing, but it is one of the great defining qualities of you. And, and I constantly say that, and you, you are aware of this, and this is something that we can more broadly talk about, I think, when we talk about it again, because we don't have the time to explore it fully. But you are very aware that because our show is on the ABC and, you know, the position of the show is, you know, cynical, yeah. uh, you know, that often your wholehearted embrace of, you know, consumerism and advertising and, you know, commercialism and all these sort of things is, you know, you become the audience pantomime villain, (laughs) you know? Which is fun, right? Right. And, but the truth is that I often say to people when someone misunderstands the nature of our relationship, Mm. you know, because you and I are, I, you know, uh, I don't think that, I hope you're not going to disagree with me, but we're very, very close friends yeah. and we get on like a house on fire, yeah. you know? And, uh, you know, and despite the fact that we disagree on a whole bunch of yeah. things, we get on like a house on fire. And I love having those conversations with you because I always learn something. But the thing that I love more than anything is that I often say to people, I said, everybody on that show works, on that panel works in advertising. Yes. And only one of them tells the truth that they love advertising. <laughs> yeah, like, you know what I mean? Like the other, the other three are like characters from some sort of, you oh. know, like the, the Da Vinci code where they're like it, slapping, slapping themselves, themselves on the back. Exactly. The... Oh, mate. And so the, the show doesn't work. This is the one thing that I know is that the show could work with any other position on the show uh, replaced. It would be different, but it could continue. The one necessary ingredient in that show and the fact that it's still on air today is you oh. and the way that you have embraced that role and the way that you have you know, been that person who is offered that because without that, the show just isn't the show that it needs to be. Well, that's so, nice to hear, isn't it? Um, Thank you, you. The fact that you love advertising is your superpower. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and, and what it does. And what it does. And what it does. And so t- tell me about that then. So <laughs> you're, you're, you're get coming into this thing, you, you come in, you be you, yeah. you, you just talk about how much you love advertising yep. and what happens. Yeah. And then, so then I get a phone call, um, we're going to do a pilot. And so I arrived for the pilot 
And what I asked was two women to come along. Um, one who was the head of corporate affairs for the agency that I ran, and the other was um, a, a woman who was a long-term PR person, but she also ran the industry body, so the advertising industry body, which I'd been the chair of in the past. And I asked both of them to come to the pilot because I wanted to hear their point of view about whether this was a good idea or not. Because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense now, but if you go back then, it was risk. Um, and I... And I was an advertiser, I was a lover of the industry and I didn't want the industry to be ridiculed and I didn't want to be seen to be someone that was unpicking the industry. So I was concerned about, you know, sitting in that seat. Anyway, both uh, Leslie and Linda said, you have to do that. Um, So their endorsement was very, very important. Um, I received a phone call uh, from Andrew. Um, No, Anita said, would you do it? I said... Yes, she said, why? And I said, so no other bastard would. And it at 100% true. The core reason I did it was if I wasn't sitting there, then someone else would be sitting there. And that would be a competitor that would be sitting there. So I made sure that I was there, right? And then Andrew Denton sent me a note saying, nothing will be the same again. Now, never true words said, because that is what's happened to me. Um, as a result of saying yes, um, it's like a negative yes, um, everything changed. I mean, genuinely, everything fundamentally changed. And, um, you know, 99 times out of 100 changes for the better, no question that's been for the better. Every now and then, it's like I think I say to myself, geez, what, if I, what would have happened if I hadn't have said yes? And it's not necessarily a bad path that might have unfolded, but there's no question that it changed everything. And then, as you know, Will, it was the um, highest um, first show since Kath and Kim, and John Casimir only recently told me that of the five top-rating shows on ABC, three of the top five are Gruen shows. Um, one is the other one is Chaser, and the other one, of course, is Catherine Kim, which is number one. So pretty amazing, Will. Isn't it? A show about ads on the ABC. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you've made a documentary about. So we'll, we'll have yep. a fuller t- talk Great. about Gruen another time. Uh, we can reminisce through the years and tell some <laughs> stories about what happened, but. Um, it's meant that you've now you're making television yourself about an industry that you love. So tell yeah. me about this uh, project that you've been working on. Well, so there, there was an agency in Sydney and a bit of Melbourne, but Sydney was its home base called Mojo, which is named after um, uh, Alan Morrison, Alan Johnson, Mo and Joe, and um, they were mid seventies to let's say mid nineties was when they were at their peak power. And they wrote advertising, which we all know. So um, you ought to be congratulated for Meadow Lee. You ought to be. Um, I feel like a twoies or two. I feel like a twoies. Always the same voice. Um, Alan Johnson is the guitarist and the voice. And his partner, of course, was the wordsmith. They partnered on that as well. Um, And Alan Johnson's very interesting. He is actually one of Australia's great singer-songwriters. It's just that he happened to do it for ads. And when you when you watch the show, hopefully you'll watch it, Will, you'll see just what a brilliant songwriter he is because every single song that he wrote is deep inside you. You you It immediately, as soon as the opening chord hits, you are straight into the stuff that he wrote. And then there's great commercial stories off the back of it. So you've got Come On, Aussie, Come On, which he wrote. Now, it's it's no exaggeration. The stadiums were empty. Come on, Aussie, come on, went on our television sets. 
and the stadiums were full. Like the ad itself created a successful World Series cricket. And so we interviewed people that were involved at the time and they they um, support the proposition that these two are two of the most important cultural voices in Australia's history. You know, they did Put a Shrimp on the Barbie. So prior to Put a Shrimp on the Barbie, Australia was number 70 on the list of countries that Americans would like to visit. After Put a Shrimp on the Barbie, it was number seven. We were number seven. So a tourism industry was created by these guys, you know, like, and literally that's what happened. And then the, the guy that was in charge of TUIs, the, the client, he's interviewed and he just says, you, like, we could not print enough beer. <laughs> like, it just went nuts. I- amazing stories. Can advertising change things in that way still today? Yes, it can. Definitely can. Um, it, it's just not as easy. So as we're, you know, the, the, the idea that a Sunday night movie would be purchased and 80% of the population would see a Meadow Lee commercial... Now, the Meadow League commercial is interesting because, you know, you, you would never get away with what they do there. I mean, it really is mum and the kids and everyone smiling and it's, you know, it's like, it's, it, it is of an era. But in that era... It's Meadow League, you ought to be congratulated. You ought to be congratulated, yeah, which okay. of course rhymes yep. with polyunsaturated, yep. right? It's just such a stupid advertising <laughs> story. The stupid ad story that creates untold success right. for a tub of margarine. You know, it's just mad. Because I, 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 I mean, you all of a sudden households in Australia had margarine. <coughs> and they were always, everyone was always a butter house, right? They just did a, they did. There's lots of amazing stories. So we have a lot of fun as well in the in the um, documentary. Delvine Delaney is in it, so that's exciting. Um, you've got John Brown, who was the minister for tourism at the time. Ian Chapel, Ida Buttrose. So iconic individuals of that era. Were there things that you discovered while you were making it that you were not aware of before going into it? Uh, look, I always knew that they had a lot of fun, but what I didn't know is that they even had a hot tub in their office. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my God. How, you know, how would you go at PwC if you were like, next, tub, right? next contract negotiation, you were like, I've got an idea. I don't even have an office, right? So that, <laughs> that, that, that won't be happening. They, look, and this, of course, is a time when ad... So ad people did get... Successful ad people in that time did get wealthy. Um, it's very, very tough now. They, there'll be few. There'll be a few that do, but it's, it's not like it was. Um, and that's because the system um, whereby you made money in advertising in the 70s, 80s, the system's changed because it used to be a commission system. So if a client spent $5 million, you'd make 10% on the $5 million of media and you'd make a service fee on the production. So you're probably making, out of, let's say, that $5 million, you're probably getting a million out of the $5 million, yeah? Like really good businesses were doing that. So they did very well. They had a lot of fun, you know, and the culture was hard, hard working, hard drinking, Smoking in the office, you know, having a ball. Um, and, of course, that created that image around 1980s advertising people, which actually the, the, the documentary isn't about that. It's not about those people and the lifestyle. It's just about the effect that the ads had on Australia. Um, and, I mean, I argue that it helped get Australian confidence. Yeah, it helped us move on from... Um, you know, that chip on our shoulder and it helped us, I think, move into, you know, that awesome Sydney Olympic opening ceremony. I think that the mojo tone of voice contributed to that. 
Uh, we've only got 10 minutes left and uh, nine minutes technically left. And uh, so I, I have some compulsory questions. Oh, These are the ones that always come at the end of the, the uh, conversation. So I need to get to these ones or people will get mad at me. Um, I don't even know if that's true. I, I invent a lot of enemies in my mind. <laughs> I have an ongoing... Uh, you are much loved, Will. You need to know. I that. have an ongoing stream of being much hated in my mind. You know this, Russell. I do, but it's uh, not true. I, um, so uh, what do you think happens when we die? Uh, what happens is you, you remain in the memories of those that remain. Uh, do you have any spiritual or religious belief around the idea of death? Um, do I have a... I mean, I'd like to think that I'll get to see family. I definitely like to think that. I don't expect that that will be the case. Um, but I do believe in, as I said before, I, 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 my father died 20 years ago. He is still very close to me. Um, and so that's memory, that's spirit, that's um, seeing behaviour of your son that's very similar behaviour. Like I saw my son Charlie smoke for the first of some years ago now, I saw him smoke. Now he has, he did not see my father smoke. He smokes exactly the same way. Like it's just so bizarre, interesting, beautiful. It's a, it, for me, you know, it's bizarre. It's like I got a, I got a warm feeling watching my, at that time, 17 year old son smoke. Smoke. It, it, <laughs> it's not normally the, I know, what right? the parental response to that situation is. I, I know. So yeah, I, I just think that there's, there's spirit in that. Uh, does do you think about death? Is death something that is present in your mind? I don't. No, I don't. I think a lot about having a better life. Um, I think about what you know. Um, having a full life is really what fills up my um, time. My life is too full at the moment, or can get too full. That does. If I if if there's something that worries me, it would be. It's that, um, and I worry about health of family, um, but I don't so much worry about it myself. I do try hard to look after myself, so maybe that plays a role in not worrying so much. I mean, my father died at 63, so I hope that's not for me, um, but then there's also some longevity in our family as well. Do you think much about what other people think of you? Um, I do like to be liked, and that is... Um, not necessarily a powerful place to be. <laughs> no, I know that it's very powerful to to at least pretend that you don't care what people think of you. <laughs> I found in my life. You get it. Uh, yeah. So, uh, it, when people speak about you behind your back, what would you hope? This is not what do you think that they're saying. If if someone was to say something behind your back, what would you hope they would be saying about you? Um. A uh, generous, a generous spirit. I think that's probably pretty true. What do you think your greatest strength is? <laughs> generous spirit. Yeah. Um, I like, I like to help people succeed. Um, I am very interested in how other people go. Um, I I can take that too far, and sometimes I will tell people what they should do. Um, and I can be a bit of a campaigner sometimes, and that can be maybe that's unfair. You know, so I, maybe I have to hold that in check a little bit. You know, I'll, I can get in conversations where I say, well, what I think you should do, and I'll say it in such a way that it sounds to the listener that that's precisely what they should do, and they might go off and do it. So I, I 
temper that a little, but I am, yeah, I'm very interested in, in others. What is your greatest weakness? Uh, as I was saying before, maybe I'm, maybe I just, I do like to be liked. Yeah. So, um, getting, I don't, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of criticism. I've got better at it. Yeah. And that's, that is definitely a maturity thing. There's no question of that. Um, I don't think anyone's a real big fan of criticism, by the <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah. Uh, I, what would you like yeah. to be better at? Like, I money. guess that's, yeah. Money. Yeah. I'd like to be better at money. Um, I'm pretty good at making it. Not so good at keeping it. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. You know, so that's, that's, well, it's not that okay. Cause actually yeah. as you get older, that does worry you. That does worry you more than, you know, when you're 35 and earning well, that's less worrying than when you're my age, still earning well, but, you know, you've got the sort of, sort of the same behaviours. Uh, there was a TV show called Heroes. It was about superheroes. They all had uh, different uh, yeah, characteristics, different yeah. strengths. Yeah. There was one villain in this show, and his capacity was that he could go around uh, and essentially slice off anyone's head and take their superpower from them, right? And then became one of his superpowers. Yeah. Uh, the superpower can be anything. You know, an ability at sport. It can be, a, you know, a, a, a physical attribute. It can be a mental attribute. It can be anything. But what, what superpower, what ability would you love to be able to steal from somebody else? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It would be... Um Focus. 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 Yeah. I think that would be it. And it's sort of, it's, uh, there's no shortage of ideas. And I immodestly say there's no shortage of good ideas. But the, what is short is focusing on the good ones and making them happen. Yeah. So that's, that is something which I do find hard to do. Um, Mojo is a is a is an example of getting it right, but you know what? I get that right because there's lots of great people around me that say, you know, that is a good idea. Let's make that happen. So that's a big part of things go well for me when I've got the right people around me that like the ideas and help make them happen. That's that's when I'm at a, I'm, that's when I'm at a much better place. I that is something that I absolutely relate to because yeah. I have a lot of ideas yeah. but I really need some help with the implementation. Right. You know, and that's okay. That's okay. And 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 <laughs> really then, need some people to run with the ball on right. the random shit that I'm spouting on about <laughs> oh, all the no. time. I know, but and then uh, and an idea when an idea is made, that's when it that's when it's determined on whether it is a good idea or not, right? You got to get it out there. Having got it out there, then the marketplace or the audience or whatever will determine whether you what your your hunch is actually true or not. Last but not least, because uh, I know that uh, we've got a hard out in one minute. But this is the final question, uh, which is uh, time travel. You have a I have a time travel machine yeah, uh, right. for the purposes of this exercise. Um, you can go back to any moment in your life and observe it, or you can go back to any moment in your life and change it. It's a return trip, by the way. Um, or a third choice, although it's my least favorite of the three, but you can have it if you like. You can just go back to a moment in history and observe it. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'm going to take the last one and then see how we go with others. So, um, I don't really know a lot about the 1760s in, in, um, Britain, but I'd like to go back to the 1760s in Britain. There's just something about that era where they, they just took on the world. Yeah, so the the idea of building an amazing, you know, empire, really. 
I think that's really fascinating. Now, the problem with that is that you always imagine yourself in a position of influence, don't you? So I'd like to go back to 1760 and be in a position of influence. You don't imagine that you're on the streets, you know, stealing bread and about to get chained and sent over to the, you know, Australia. So I do think that's a really interesting era. Um, and I like it. I like that era because I imagine that there's just lots of talking. Yeah, I, I imagine that you would meet in bars at night, every night, and you would smoke and you'd drink and you'd talk. Um, and I, I'd like more of that in my life. Yeah, I'd, I'd like more... Let's get together and have lots of conversations. Um, so, yeah, I, I like the idea of that. Uh, in terms of, you know, I, lots of good stuff's happened to me, Will. I don't know that I want to change anything. Anything you would like to observe? Um, anything I'd like to observe. To go back to a moment in your life and see it from another perspective. Well, okay. Um, well, my parents were divorced. The separation divorce sort of when I was 12, 13. I'd like to go back and look at that with more mature eyes, for sure, because, you know, um, when you're a young boy, um, it does it does actually fundamentally affect you, and it'd be nice to go back and just coach myself through that. Uh, we could talk for hours, as we always do, and as we did. We talked for as long as we've talked now <laughs> beforehand, but we were it's eating. Like, it's sort of like a three-hour chat. It is, yeah. <laughs> People only got to hear half of it. <laughs> uh, let's uh, have another chat one day about Great Gruen, book. but um, thank you so much for doing this. When's the documentary on, by the way? It's on early October. Yeah, okay. So uh, coming to ABC early October. If you watch the first episode of Gruen, there'll be plugs aplenty. I think we'll know Because it's after the yeah. first episode of Gruen. I think that's Gruen. the plan. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I, I hope people really enjoyed it. It's a moment in time in Australia's history. And certainly, um, if you are around in those years, you, you'll get a sense of nostalgia for sure. Russell Howcroft, it's been a pleasure, mate. Cheers, Will. Thank you. <laughs>